Two-thirds of the 2021 MotoGP World Championship is done now that the British Grand Prix at Silverstone has been taken by Fabio Quattararo on board his works Yamaha, taking his fifth victory this year, and he's now extended his championship lead from 47 to 65 points. It's getting better and better race by race for the Frenchman. Yamaha lead the constructors and team title chase as well. So all in all, after the Vinales mess... They're coming out strong with just six races to go. I'm Toby Moody and joining me is Valentin Harunchi and Simon Patterson. Your four, your first thoughts from Silverstone. I'll go with you, Simon, first. Uh, Fabio Quattararo is the 2021 MotoGP World Champion and no one's going to stop him now. Val. I uh, genuinely didn't think Aprilia was going to get a podium this year. Happy to be, happy to be proven wrong. For me, it's what I saw with Fabio Quattararo when he was listening to the national anthem on top of the podium. Even he was beginning to go, yeah, this is mine. Don't mess it up. So I'm pretty well in the same boat as you, Simon. Um, <laughs> do you think, Val, that it's his championship and that's it? Uh, yeah, if he doesn't get injured, I think. I mean, we, we basically came very close to a scenario where the title gets away from him in in practice where it looked like his leg got squished against the bike in in the in the high side crash that looked relatively innocuous but then looked really really bad upon replay and he wasn't able to get up right away and he will seem to struggle to put weight on the on the ankle ultimately it was just a sprain didn't seem to bother him terribly much for the rest of the weekend but we we saw a glimpse of an alternate reality where he loses the the title. Ultimately, I guess that could still happen. You're never 100% safe from injury on a MotoGP bike. But in in terms of pure performance, yeah, it's his. But it, it's been his for a long time, and it's 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 a lot more his now. 65 points over six remaining races, and that's a it's just a huge gap. It's massive. Well, it's two races and nearly a third position, isn't it? Two race wins and nearly a third position. So it's uh, it's pretty well in the bag so far as I'm concerned. They're not completely running away with the uh, with the constructors' championship. They're only nine points ahead, but obviously a lot of people focus on the riders, and particularly us and our listeners, we focus on the riders' championship. Uh, was anybody else going to win Silverstone, Simon, or was it always going to be the Frenchman's? Um, someone else is going to win Silverstone if things had gone wrong for Fabio Cotteraro. Um, it felt like one of those races like, uh, like Jerez at the start of the year when we expected him to turn up and dominate the entire weekend and win the race. Um, and, and that is exactly what happened in Jerez until he got arm pumped with what, four laps to go and, and suddenly fell off the side of a cliff and yeah. Um, but I, I'm, you know, everything we saw at Silverstone just looked like it was going to be him. I think his his gap on race pace going into the race over Peko Bagnaia was like half a second, which is just unheard of in modern MotoGP. It's just, you know, um, part of it's because the Yamaha really, really suits Silverstone. Um, it is a bike for that track. Part of it is that he is on top of the world at the minute. He is so full of confidence. And yeah, I don't think anything was ever... I don't, we never saw any signs of anything getting in the way of him delivering that performance, and nothing did. And one of the reasons he had a big gap is that it's a big track. You know, there's just, you know, it's a two-minute lap. Sorry, Val. Yeah, I, I, but, I, but I think it was, you know, if you think back to pre-injury Marquez at, at Cota or pre-injury Marquez at, at Saxon Ring, it's, it's you show up and you look at the timesheets and you go, yeah, this is only ever going one way. And that was the feeling for much of this weekend especially in fp4 when in those early laps he looked like seven or eight tenths quicker than everybody else and they got closer ultimately but it was clear he had something extra on race pace just didn't see it going any other way particularly there were as as simon says there was jerez i think there was also another race where it looked like he really should be winning the the leathers malfunction race it looked like he had something extra in the pocket but even before the leathers malfunction he was trailing miguel and miguel i think was probably going to go into win that race regardless but this looked very cut and dry from the from the moment he took the lead so yeah it's it's it, it's a bit marcus-esque i'd say by the time he had bolted and had got 
second and a half and eventually a two and a half second lead at the line. The others had sorted themselves out. And in the end, it was Alex Rins who finished in second position. Kind of snuck up a typical Suzuki using the best of its tyre in the latter part of the Grand Prix. So second position for him. But Simon, he, he wasn't so happy after the race. A lot of people weren't so happy after the race with tyre inconsistency. How long has that been going on under the bubbling around the paddock, should I say? Yeah, it's been going on for a while. Um, it's always been an issue um, with a few sort of repeat offenders being quick to complain about it. Um, it's become a bit more common now. But to be perfectly honest, in my opinion, it's an excuse. Um, it's something that people have become very, very quick to use as a crutch because tires tend to be, you know, the tire is the only part of the motorcycle that contacts the track. All of the feelings that you get from the track come through the tires. And therefore, it's like they're the focus point for anything that could go wrong for a rider. Um, I think that maybe depends on your take on it. It depends on whether or not you see it as a fault or not. I think the Michelins are very sensitive. Uh, they react a lot whenever things change. Um, I did an interview with with their, their boss, Piero Taramasso, in Austria, where he said that uh, a lap time difference of 0.2 of a second can make a temperature tire difference of 10 degrees. So the tires are very, very sensitive to different things. But I think when riders say they get a bad tire, what they actually are saying is they get a tire that felt different. It's not the same thing. Um, and it's a bit unfair for Michelin to get all the criticism whenever people are not willing to understand that there's other factors at play. You know, Sunday was much, much colder than uh, Saturday was. There was a wind picked up as it does at Silverstone. The track wasn't the same track and it's a long, fast track. And I think that's what we saw more than anything else. We saw people sticking the mediums into a, set of, into a bike that had the same tires or the same settings as the day before and expecting to do the exact same thing in a track that was different. I should say, I don't think, I don't think we've heard Fabio complain about a, a poor tire all season, or at least if he did, it didn't impact his performance as dramatically as some of the others claim it impacts theirs. If it's, you know, if it's working for him reliably, then either we are to conclude that he is the luckiest man alive, which I doubt, or we're to conclude that there's something about the combination of Fabio Quartararo and Yamaha that allows him to overcome any, even if the tiring inconsistencies do exist, there's something about Fabio and Yamaha that allows them to, to overcome it with, with relative ease. People who win races don't complain, and Frenchmen who win races on French tires certainly don't complain. Um, I think that's uh, that's going to be Cynic. that's going to be a given. That is a cynical view, but you don't hear many people but winning no, Grand Prix and complaining. It is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. Um, we have heard certain writers complain about it a lot, and we've heard other writers never mention it. And we saw Valentino Rossi have very similar problems to uh, the likes of Pekka Bagnaia and Mir, who were the two most vocal critics during Sunday's race. Rossi had exactly the same thing. He was running an eighth, tenth until half distance, and then he just dropped, said he was losing two or three seconds a lap. But he said afterwards, the track was very different from the track that we had the day before. I wanted to use the hard tire. Uh, I wasn't able to. I had to use the medium tire. The medium tire didn't work the way I expected it to because the temperature was different. And I tend to trust him partly because I think he's got nothing to lose in being honest at the minute, and partly because he's got decades and decades of experience. For for whatever that's worth uh, with Mir and Banyaya, I'm actually, even though I'm a bit sceptical of the of the tyre rhetoric, those two guys, they're at least, you know, Mir obviously is a very thoughtful, very eloquent person who doesn't just talk nonsense, so I don't think he's just using it as a cheap excuse, and... and Banyaya's pace was just really weird. It was a really, really weird race from him. And I know he does tend to have those sometimes, more in the previous years than right now. But that pace drop-off was, like, really, really dramatic. So there was definitely something going on there. That was not his pure, normal Silverstone performance. That was an outlier. What caused that outlier is, is of course, an entirely different question. 
Third position, though, was one of the highlights of the day. And I suppose it's going to be what everybody will remember Silverstone 2021 for, because finally, after 20 years of four-stroke MotoGP, the Aprilia team have got themselves on the podium. They had uh, uh, podiums in the two-stroke era in 500. And finally, they've got it with Alicia Spargaro. Uh, he was up there, he was leading, he was second place, he was battling with his brother. We all took a deep breath and thought, two brothers, they've got form on trying to beat each other and then throwing it down the road. And he kept a cool head and he did it. I think it was just a wonderful celebration and outpouring of not just, well, it's not just emotion, it's the unbelievable amount of hours, thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of hours of engineers pouring over data and people making widgets for the bike and they get a third position, it's as good as a victory and he's uh, he's on the podium. I mean, he, he, if he's still not smiling in two weeks' time, Simon, by the time you get to Aragon, there's something wrong with him. <laughs> the funny thing is, we expected him to be, you know, beyond himself with emotion after the race and he wasn't. Uh, he did this thing that we've seen before from Aleish this year, and it's testament to his character in many regards. He wasn't excited. He wasn't happy. He he wanted to go and race in, in Aragon today. He wants more. He, it isn't that, that he's willing to settle. It, he wants to keep pushing. He knows that Aragon can be an even better round for them. He knows that soon he's going to have Maverick Vinales on the other side of the garage, which is going to boost the project even more. He just wants to go faster and faster and faster and push harder and harder and harder. And in many senses, that's completely unsurprising because I would say that that is probably Alicia's single greatest quality as a MotoGP rider. He's not, you know, he's one of the very few guys in the championship never to have won any Grand Prix race in any class. And all the time you get people questioning, how can someone that's never won a race deserve a factory bike, blah, blah, blah. It is because he is, as well as being an excellent development rider, being, he's just incredibly tenacious. He trains harder. He works harder. Um, The, the last interview I did with Massimo Rivola, the, the Aprilia boss, he said that the massive benefit they had from developing a bike with Aleish is that most riders give 100% in qualifying and in the race. Aleish gives 100% every session. And as a result, the feedback they get is more consistent. And, and I think that his response to yesterday and the fact that he wasn't super excited or emotional or crying or floods of tears is, yeah, it proves that point once again. Because if they're in floods of tears and they're crying and they're emotional, they've, they've hit the top of Everest. At the moment, exactly. he's got to base camp. You know, he he is okay. The other reason why he's saying I want to race tomorrow is the amount of fitness he does and cycling he does. And you know, as a cyclist, when you're on form, I need to race now. I can't wait another couple of weeks because I might lose my form. And he knows his his own body. He knows his own psyche better than anybody else. So they've hit a seam of gold, and they got to. They've got to they've got to ferret through and and keep mining it out. Yeah, and to 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 pick up your your analogy about Everest, the good thing about Alesh is that if if he is the guy, he's the guy that's got them to base camp. But if he's the guy that gets them to the final camp for the push on the summit and carries the oxygen bottles for Maverick Vinales to be the guy that actually climbs to the summit, he's happy to do that. How much is this down to Rivola. Uh, Alesh seems to think that it's like the one common thread from Alesh's rhetoric post-race, apart from the fact that he did seem very chill about it. Like he just got a debt he was long owed. He got it. He was honestly, in a weird sense, he was more annoyed that it's taken this long, I think, if we read a bit into his reaction. But beyond that, the one common thread was he, he gave a lot of, of, of praise and credit to how Massimo Rivola has transformed the Aprilia team, uh, which I'm not privy to the exact mechanics, but if there's anybody who knows, I think Aleish will know better than anyone. So I'm I'm dubious on the role of a single person in history, if that makes sense. But mm -mm -mm. in this particular case, it seems pretty quantifiably that he's had a, a major impact. The, the thing for me has always been that Aprilia has all the tools that they needed 
They had a decent development rider in Aleish. They had decent resources. You know, they're owned by Piaggio, who are a massive brand. Everything was in theory there for them. But the bit that they continually messed up was the people management, the rider management, the organization of the logistics, the, the bits of actually bringing all the separate strong elements together and making them work as a race team. And that was the role that Massimo Rivola was brought in to do. You know, before he joined the team, the team boss was Romano Abbasiano, who's the chief engineer, which meant half of his time wasn't spent working in engineering. It was spent on work on, you know, signing writer contracts. But also, Abbasiano is an engineer, and engineers are not the best people managers. So it makes sense that bringing in someone, splitting that role in two, was always going to have a benefit. Do we have a clue on their budget? What's the vibe? No. What's the feeling? It's 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 towards the smaller end. Of course. It's not the smallest. Um, I think that's probably Suzuki. But we're we're talking we're probably if we're talking ten million, that's probably about it. Whereas, you know, KTM and Honda are spending fifty million. Bef- before this latest Rich Run of Form in twenty twenty one uh, the line on the budget from Aleish was not enough. Oh, it's never enough. Yeah, that's, Come on. That's, it's never it's, enough. Yeah. yeah, but not like... I don't think we hear any other any other riders from from factory teams ever bring that sort of thing up. And, and Aleish did. Doesn't anymore, because the bike works well now, I guess. But, yeah. Or maybe they did infuse some extra cash. Yeah. Where are things at with Vinales? Is he riding this week? Uh, yeah, he is testing on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, first time out in the new bike at Mizano. From what I understand, it's going to be a little bit different from Dovi's test because obviously Maverick has come in with a very different approach to what Dovi wanted from Aprilia. From what I understand, there will be no building new parts, um, working to make him comfortable. He's told the team... Give me Alicia's bike. Let me ride Alicia's bike until I'm as fast as Alicia. And then we'll talk about development. He just wants to use the next two days to get used to it. He is most likely going to be at Mizano to race it. And I think he will use the remainder of this year just to get used to it. So don't expect fireworks. Don't expect him to stick it in the front row on his first time out. Blah, 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 blah. If he's rolling around at the back, that's what he's there to do. But um, I think that, you know, he's getting a huge head start in a year where we have less testing than ever. Uh, I saw the, I I only saw the the preseason testing dates come out this week. We've got five days of preseason testing ahead of next season. That's nothing if you're being chucked into the wolf pack that is MotoGP right now. Um, So to be able to run, you know, potentially four or five races on the bike, winner, you know. How's it working that he's able to do two days of testing on on the ground? Concessions? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Somebody's ahead of the game. Yeah, of course, silly. I I don't. I haven't put Vinales in a concessions box, but of For course now. he is now. Yeah, another few days <laughs> like Sunday. Well, I got one point yesterday, so yeah, they did. And out of what is it, nine? So yeah, um, six is it? Uh, six. Oh, Sorry, six. apologies. Yeah. Six. six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. six. Um, so yeah, uh, okay, oh, that's interesting. So, whilst we're talking about replacement riders, let's get on to Dovi. Um, his manager, Simone Bastistella, was around at Silverstone yesterday or weekend. He was going to make an announcement yesterday to the Italians, to the Austrians, and all sorts. What was that? The, there wasn't really one from Battistella, but there was one from Yamaha boss Lynn Jarvis who went on TV and basically happily can say confirmed everything that we've been writing for the last three weeks about the whole thing. Um, Davi has signed for Petronas Yamaha. For this season, he will continue that contract on next year with the new With You Yamaha, which I'm hearing might be With You Wind Yamaha, which is an Italian, obviously With You, an Italian electronics supplier, or electricity supplier, uh, Wind or a big mobile network over there. Um, who I think have done some personal sponsorship with Dovi over the years. So there's a little bit of they money have, coming yeah. in there. Um, and and in exactly the same position as as Vinales, he's seen the chance to get ride the bike for six rounds. 
In fact, Yamaha have much more of a need for him than Aprilia do for Vinales because Aprilia have Lorenzo Salvadori in the seat already, whereas Yamaha have a big gaping hole. Um, so yeah, he's going to jump on the bike. Sounds like it's all done. And um, 2021, I think, will be a learning year for him. It's going to take a while to get back used to the Yamaha, but the Yamaha for me always suited Dovi's riding style much more than a Ducati did anyway. And we'll see next year. I'm fairly certain we'll see him win in races. Uh, wait, are we going to have to ride with you win the Yamaha every time next year? I really hope ah, not. Dear but Lord. Let's see how that one pans out. They need to. They need to come up with some sort of shorthand, or we're just going to call it Rosali Yamaha or Stigafeld Yamaha. <laughs> or that sounds with you win. Oh, the old Stiggy Honda days, eh? Yeah. Um, so Morbidelli is not coming back, or is he going to go into Moschiano? He'll go straight to the factory team. Okay. What's the timing on that? Straight to the factory. And they, they they could use him. Yeah. They could use him because they need they well they've got like a fifty point buffer in the team's championship over Ducati, which given the current level of performance by Quartararo, even one bike might be enough to hold that off. But I think inviting Morbidelli in basically shores that up and ensures it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's you know he was he is the the second best Yamaha this year pretty clearly out of those still employed by Yamaha. I guess you could make a Vinales versus Morbidelli argument, but Vinales uh, exploded. So yeah, this is this is the best the best they can do right now is bring him into the factory seat right away. That and is they should, and they will. one way to describe what happened. Well, something exploded. Something did. could have exploded. Yeah. So who's going to be alongside Dovi next year? It sounds like it's going to be Darren Binder. Um, because, incredibly, um, it seems like the story is true that Darren Binder signed a contract with... So I'm assuming he signed a contract with a company called One Performance, which is Johan Stigafelt's holding company in Sweden. Um, who I've been contracted to in the past. Uh, he, they then folded, the contract was with the intention of him writing for the Moto2 team. The Moto2 team then folded whenever Patronus withdrew their sponsorship. And Darren Binder's very, very, very clever manager, an American man by the name of Bob Moore, has said, well, we have a contract, so we'll be writing your MotoGP bike or we'll see you in court. Yes, yeah, so it'll be a clause that says, you will offer my rider a ride with a one performance run team, something like that. Uh, but it, it, yeah, and, and if there's no three yeah, and no yeah, exactly. two, well, there's only one team left, exactly. Simon, can you throw your hat in the ring with your one performance deal that used to exist? Maybe you can be on that bike <laughs> with Binder and with Dobby, make it a my, three bike my, team like Honda. My deal is, uh, thankfully, uh, long so expired. weird. We're going to have to edit out the thankfully or so. so, so no, nope. <laughs> come on. Let's keep on the subject. Um, well, okie dokie. Um, Ducati uh, Miller had a good run. Uh, I thought that Jorge Martin was going to be on the podium without a shadow of a doubt. Um, let's get straight on to Jorge Martin. What was Mark Marquez doing? I know it's easy to sit here in our armchairs and go, what were you doing? But bit of a bit of a clot move. I, I've, you just stop thinking. I've been uh, I've been a bit overly critical of Mark, maybe of his re- retirement runs and and run of crashes. It makes me seem anti Marquez, maybe, which I'm definitely not. But poor Alex Rins has been roasted repeatedly for his run of run of DNFs, and he obviously was very good this Sunday. Uh, Mark keeps making errors, and they're they're bad ones. This was a bad one. This was a really really bad one. And unlike Rins, he took someone else down with him this time. Um, I, I, I understand how it happened, I guess, because, uh, you know, Martin, Martin event, initially, it wasn't an aggressive move, but there was a bit of contact when Martin slotted down the inside of turn seven. They both went into turn eight. Suddenly, Martin opened the door by going wide into turn eight, being caught up a bit behind Fabio. And so his line was compromised to turn nine. So that was obviously an opportunity, but... Ultimately, just a misjudgment. The move Mark tried, he couldn't pull off without taking them both down. And 
I, I'm not sure we've heard anything about an investigation or a penalty, but that's that's the kind of move that that has to be a penalty in in a vacuum. And for a guy with Mark's previous record of being a bit unkind to other riders on the track and often, well, not often, but sometimes causing other riders to crash, I think that's a, a no-brainer penalty, an absolute slam dunk. So I'm surprised we haven't heard anything about that. Simon, they're not going to penalize him because they won't. Well, yeah. Um, they just won't. The, 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 he... <sighs> if he was a Moto3 rider... If he was a Moto3 rider, he'd have been penalized before the race was over, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, yeah, that's my case. But for whatever reason... Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to get into thought... the conspiracy theories about anything, but you have to ask why it seems like do you know what? I don't even think it's some riders, to be honest. I think it's some classes. I don't get why Moto3 yeah. and MotoGP are not treated equally when it comes to penalties. That's what it comes down to. And this all goes back to the issue that we have complained about for the past three years since Freddie Spencer took over as the head of the FIM Stewards panel. Racers are not the best people to administer the rules because racers aren't, they, they have no legal training. There needs to be there needs to be jurisprudence. There needs to be consistency. There needs to be precedence, and there ain't any because it's a motorbike racer and an airline pilot running the stewards panel. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, everyone in the situation is in agreement that it was, including Mark. Everyone in the situation is in agreement that it was a Mark mistake that ended the race of Jorge Martin. I'm not even sure you need a stewards yes. hearing for that. That, in my book, in my book of how I understand motor racing. That should be a penalty. There should be repercussions for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did have a chuckle at Jorge Martin's Instagram stories, and he went through, 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 and then literally the last one, I forget his wording, but it was something like, I'll leave it here. And there was an external shot of Mark on the inside, Jorge just with the front wheel being hoofed into the air. And, you know, Martin's no clown. He also uh, it, said, I hope Mark learns from this and improves for the future, which is a, <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing to say <laughs> yes. about a six-time MotoGP champion when you're a rookie. I think it yeah. was brutal, yeah, to yeah. be perfectly honest. I think it was lovely. And a, and a bloke who started seven or eight Grand Prix, yeah. Mm, yeah, good one, good one. Uh, another reason to like Jorge Martin even more, really, isn't it? Uh, Miller salvaged that fourth position. The Ducatis, I thought they were going to... I thought they were going to be there. I thought they were going to at least be on the podium, but it kind of faded for them. Um, wasn't to be. But then again, that's Silverstone for them, really, isn't it? I think Banyaya and and Martin look to have something a bit extra compared to, to Miller. But ultimately, Banyaya's race fell apart completely and Martin was, was taken down. So we won't. We won't really know. Miller did ride a pretty good race because when he started fading in the beginning, I thought he was he was done. That it was a typical Miller race where he just goes backwards. But actually, he held something in reserve and rode a honestly a really quite good race. The problem is for the championship that yeah you know, doesn't do anything. A pretty good will not cut it against this version of Fabio. Mm -hmm. So yeah. But of course, on Saturday afternoon we had the poll from Paul. Um, blimey, talk about being in the wilderness and then come out with a pole position and led the race. How in heaven's name did that happen? He's been nowhere. We should say that first we had a poll from Jorge Martin for like two minutes or something where uh, well, he, yeah. yeah, where he cut he, the... He, he used the Silverstone Classic <laughs> yeah. circuit. Yeah, he cut, the, I think, the veil chicane, but I don't quite remember. But yes, basically. It was. Yes, it, it was. was it was a lot of fun to watch because I always follow life timing with the gaps on, and it was a normal first sector, and then I saw that in the second sector, uh, he gained one point five seconds, and I was like, "Well, that's clearly like physically impossible." So that's getting deleted right away, and then I look over thirty more thirty more seconds, and it's still there, and I'm like, "Hello, anyone?" Then checkered flag, it's still there. Anyone? Uh, Martin rocks up to Park Fermé and his, his time still stands. And he didn't and... want to go into Park Fermé because Ricky's going, yeah. you've got to go in yeah, from Urta. Yeah. And, and Jorge's going, but no, I got the call. <laughs> I think there was genuinely a second for almost everyone but Martin where they were like, 
Jesus, did he really do it somehow? <laughs> did he find some sort of... Did he jump over Maggots <laughs> and Beckett's? What did he do? But then, you know, finally we we found out what was in hindsight very obvious, that it was not a legit lap. Yeah. So, you know, great. There, there is, Beyond that... There is, a, yeah. at Vale Inter Club, a, a kind of shortcut for the... As I say, I call it the Silverstone Classic Circuit, so that the historic cars don't have to overuse their brakes to do the slowest corner on the racetrack and potential for accidents because it is a bit of a bus stop round there. It is a bit of a log jam. So they just whiz round. And that's exactly what he did because he was trying to... He he said later he was trying to catch up Marquez or he was trying to follow somebody. Marquez. Marquez. Yeah, which honestly... That did surprise me a little bit because I did not know that was legal. I did not know you could cut the track to to get a toe and basically maintain racing speed. If that is legal, it feels to me like it should not be. Like you should not be able to cut the track to get yourself but in the track penalty, position. The penalty for but, cutting the track is losing the lap time that you set on that lap. So no, for but itself, I mean policing. <laughs> yeah. No, but if 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 it's clear that you're specifically just cutting the track, not because you've made a mistake, but because you're mm. you're playing around. But I, I guess MotoGP stewarding has more pressing issues yes. to address than that. Um, on to pole. Wonder. I think I think we're all extremely jazzed because it's been a very depressing season for for a guy who's normally all smiles and a lot of fun. And he looked good all weekend. Paul was, you know, a bit of a surprise, obviously, but he he looked he looked genuinely really good all weekend, and the the race finish was good too. But obviously. The the pole was a big uh, was a big highlights and I think a real real feel good moment this season. The the problem is I think the whole thing counts for nothing for him. Really? Unfortunately, um, yeah, he did it because the track was cool because the conditions were cold because there was loads of grip. He said all weekend that because of the way he rides, because of how much he uses the rear brake, uh, and because of how little he's been able to use the rear brake on the current iteration of the bike of the honda um so so basically the problem with the honda is they have no rear grip all of the rear grip that they have is used up by the engine braking system paul needs the rear brake to turn the bike they have told him he can't use the rear brake to the extent that they've put super strong uh, springs into the rear brake to stop him from being able to slam it the way he used to so he can't turn the bike what we saw at Silverstone was loads and loads and loads of rear grip on a really, really cool track that brought the Honda back to a level where he could ride the bike the way he wanted to. But he said himself all weekend, this is conditions that most people don't like and this is conditions that I love and I'm happy and everyone else is annoyed at it. But more often than not, I'm the one that's annoyed and everyone else is the one that's happy because the conditions normally go the other way, not this way. So what I saw this weekend was someone who managed to pull a good result out because of external circumstances, but who has continued to do absolutely nothing to change his riding style to suit the fact that his riding style does not work on the bike that he's riding right now. This is just a, you know, it's it's a blip in the radar because we're going to go straight back to another track next week in uh, Aragon where things go back to normal. And once again, Paul can't ride the bike because he hasn't changed his riding style. I should say the 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 cold hot theory is is very much supported by the fact that his other best day of the of the year was Le Mans. Basically, Le Mans Friday was really really good. Uh that said, you know we are getting closer to the winter, so I think we're going to get other cold races. I'd imagine Valencia in particular seems like a, a decent enough candidate for something, but obviously it's a it's a major point to work on in the off season. Hopefully, also in qualifying, don't forget that his teammate Mark Marquez was fifth position, point two of a second back in a big lap, so it was suiting Mark as well. And Mark arguably is two tenths of a lap slow around Silverstone because he's still not quite right. Huge crash, hundred and what seventy mile an hour Damn. on Friday. Uh, crash on warm up on Sunday morning before he didn't even complete a lap in the race. So you know he's not quite all there at the moment. So so yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, leaving KTM to go to Honda was Paul Spargaro, but as always, Brad Binder was the 
saviour, if I could say that for KTM, but what about in sixth position? But what about Ike Lekuona? What a great ride for seventh. What a boy. Yeah. It's there something interesting going on with, with Lekuona's performances where I think it's not just the the fortunate result in 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 Austria, and it's not just what happened this weekend where he just looked pretty strong all throughout. I think, but ultimately did depend the the good result did depend a little bit on other people hitting what they what they saw as tire problems, basically. But he does seem to be improving a fair bit as of late. He did seem to find something that for me, does sort of harken back to that very good initial MotoGP debut he had that promised so much and that he, I think he never quite lived up to until maybe now. But the problem is the contract's already all signed. The the 22 grid is filled. Um, he has some options somewhere. He says he does not want to go back to Moto2, so that I presume that means World Superbike. Uh, but he, he wasn't really... didn't go into too much detail during the weekend. But... I wonder if knowing what we we know this weekend, whether the Tech 3 thing for 22 could have worked out any differently. I presume not, because ultimately, if you have a, if you need to hang on to Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez, you do that, and then you worry about the other thing beyond that. But that said, it it's a bit harsh that Lecuona is hitting form exactly after being fired, like right away. I think that's a that's a bit of a shame. From from what I understand, he's going to be a World Superbike rider next year, with the intention of doing a, a kind of a Andrea Davizioso sabbatical, taking one year out of MotoGP and then looking to come back uh, into GP again in twenty three. Um, it's a complete shame the the kid has taken a bit of time to find his stride. He's actually basically done exactly what Hervé Poncheral said at the beginning we would expect him to do. Um, it's just taken a little bit longer than we thought it would, and yeah, that's too late for him. Um, it's a shame that to be well, to be perfectly honest, it's a complete shame that we're kicking out a twenty-two-year-old full of talent to hire a thirty-five-year-old who brings lots of money in the shape of Andrea Davizioso. Uh, it I, shouldn't be that way. I, I wouldn't like. I wouldn't probably go that far because ultimately, yeah, I've been skeptical of uh, a Davizioso return in the past, but. I do see the I do see the draw. I do see why it'll be really really interesting. But I was also I was very captivated by the the idea of Lequon on a on a Patronus and, Yamaha when it briefly seemed like a thing. And it's it, and, it is a shame that will happen. Let's not forget that the Patronus Yamaha team is a team that has said since day one they're there to develop young talent. They're here to bring three young riders. Blah blah blah. They're replacing a forty three year old with a thirty five year old at the expense of a twenty two year old. You know. But w- weren't those words Patronus words rather than? SIC words. No, I always got the impression that those were SIC more than they were Patronus, because it's not in the interests of a sponsor necessarily to bring through yeah. young talent. It's not in the best interests of a sponsor to say, "Here's your Fabio Quadraro. Oh, look, he's going to win a few races now. He's off to the factory to win a championship." Yeah, that's for Yamaha them. pulling the strings. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's that was you know the team are supposed to be a Yamaha partner. They were supposed to be what Pramac are for Ducati. And instead, they've turned into where Yamaha sent their geriatrics to retire. <laughs> Yikes. Ouch. Harsh, but fair. <laughs> you know, but but Valentino Rossi, Valentino Rossi is in a seat that he doesn't deserve solely because he had a contract with Yamaha and they had to put him somewhere. That's that's the cold hard fact of it. I think, and Val, and Simon, you'll, you'll get this, you know, that it, I was, I'm, I'm a fan of Alonso. I like him because he's a ballsy driver. And he should have won more Formula One World Championships, but I was a little bit skeptical that he was coming back. I hoped that he would do well, but he kind of hasn't. And that whole being out, coming back thing, I don't think works in the third decade of the 21st century. And that Dovey thing, being out and coming back, it's a bloody steep hill to climb to get on top of these things that are... They're bloody difficult to ride anyway, and now they're even harder, and they're even closer together. I, well, I think the Alonso thing is for a different podcast because I would actually argue that I, I he's impressed me a fair bit, and he's been fun to have. But also, there's not in F1, there's not the 
terrifying talent logjam and the the expectations that you have in in in, in Moto Two and Moto Three, where we we've got grown accustomed to getting the three or four best Moto Two guys onto the grid as an infusion of fresh blood every year, basically. And right now, Dovi's return compromises some of that. Like instead of Dovi. It could have been, you know, we could have continued to see the development of Iker Lecon, or we could have seen an Augusto Fernandez or an Aaron Canet, or even, you know, Sam Lowe's get a second chance. Maybe those would have been more meaningful in terms of, in terms of career path. But that said, you know, let's let's see how he goes. I think that if if he goes really really well, then we'll forget this conversation. Maybe. In a in a, in a slightly different parallel universe, we could have seen uh, that team next year being the team that it was set up to be and being Raul Fernandez and Iker Lacona, which would have been an exciting been young team. Yeah, I would have loved that. Yeah. That would have been pretty cool. That would have been very, very cool. Um, 67,000 people came to Silverstone. That's about the most amount of people we've had at a Grand Prix this year, Simon, if my memory serves off the top of my head. Yeah, I think that's... it's Austria just tipped them, Toby. I think that they had a, a little bit more... I think off the top of my head, they had 74,000 in race day. The, the problem that Silverstone had this year was actually they could have sold a lot more tickets. But capacity at Silverstone is set for MotoGP at a certain figure. It's set at a much bigger figure for F1. Um, They would have liked to have sold more tickets because they have the grandstand space for them. But it was an exceptionally busy weekend in the UK in the live industry scene. Uh, Creamfields was on, Leeds Reading was on, uh, there was a couple of big car meetings on. And basically what happened was they sold loads and loads of tickets. Valentino Rossi announced he was retiring. They sold all of their tickets. They thought, crap, we need to sell some more. And then they went to do all the things that you have to do to let people into the race, like hire more portaloos, hire more security staff, find someone to rent you the scanners that you use to scan the tickets. And there was no one left available because it was so last minute. And the police to shut the roads, the which is to about shut the roads. a 350, 400 grand bill. Exactly, exactly. So... All of the extra capacity can't just, it isn't just a case of kicking open a grandstand and saying, there you go, guys, have a good day. Um, and, and they literally just could not get there in time um, to, to add more. They, I think they'll add, a little, there'll be a few more tickets on sale next year. Although they're a little bit weary of adding a load more capacity next year in case this was the Rossi effect, the coming out of the pandemic effect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um it's good to see Silverstone get a good crowd through the gates. I think reading between the lines, they needed it after a very, very, very tough 18 months for them. Um, and yeah, let's hope that, you know, they can retain some of that audience. Um, I had a good chat with Stuart Pringle on Saturday, I think, the, the circuit boss. And he said, you know, a good Sunday for him is people who have only come to the race because it's Valentino Rossi's last race and who haven't been in... 10 years or five years or whatever, walking out the gate thinking, man, why don't we do this every summer? That was amazing. And hopefully, hopefully a few people have caught that bug again. And it is good for the future of the sport in the UK. Exactly. And we haven't been to Silverstone for two years anyway. The last time we went there, it was boiling hot and it was wonderful. And it was hotter than the sun and it was a great race. And everybody, everybody had a, everybody had a good time at the weekend. I, haven't been to a race for a couple of years for obvious reasons, and it was a great race and it was a great atmosphere. Um, they uh, they're going to move the dates next year to the beginning of August, so August six, seven, eight, something seventh. like that. Race over August the 7th next year. 5-6-7. So that'll make quite a bit of difference because for those of you listening who are not in the UK, here we are at the end of August. It's early autumn now and we can get warm bank holiday and it's a holiday weekend here in the UK this weekend. So today, Monday, is a public holiday, which is one of the reasons why Silverstone has always been on this bank holiday weekend so that people can stay on Sunday night and drift home today. Um, but the weather, I mean, it still can rain at any day of the year, but the weather could be a bit better earlier in August. One of the reasons Stuart Pringle has been so busy this year is, A, they had to struggle with what they did last year with two Formula One Grand Prix back-to-back, but then the Formula One race this year was within 
it was a special government permitted event that could take place where there was a public gathering before the end of the COVID restrictions. And the COVID restrictions, ironically, finished the day after the Formula One Grand Prix. But it was a full house of 140,000 people. I was there. The sun shone. It was amazing. But the political work that Stuart Pringle and the Silverstone team had to do was even more so than the physical work of getting the portaloos and shutting the roads and 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 and, and printing programs. And they just had to get through and earn some money to prop up everything else. Because at the end of the day, Silverstone have got to pay Dorna for the right to have a Grand Prix come to them this year, next year and going forward. You've got to have the money to make these events happen. One uh, really good little piece of information that Silverstone chucked my way at the weekend. The government have published the report from that test event that they did at the British Grand Prix. They had 375,000 people, I think, through the gates over three days. At four, four days, days. Yep. and they had 300 of them who were believed to have arrived with COVID and 250 caught COVID at the event. Absolutely minuscule numbers. They wow. are delighted about that. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nothing like data, as I would say, Simon. Exactly, exactly. <sighs> yeah, um, and there were a lot of people there. Oh, my goodness me, what what an atmosphere. So, uh, so yeah. Good. Well, I think we have covered the first two thirds of the season. And here we are with these remaining races, Aragon, Misano, Cota in Austin, back to Misano, then Portugal and Valencia. Uh, I do I do smile, guys, when you're Valentino Rossi and you have two leaving races. <laughs> by hook or by crook, it's happened. It's it's. It's almost as if there was some sort of a some sort of a conspiracy to make it happen, eh? Well, well, quite. No comment. Um, Simon, you've muttered digitally that Austin figures are going the wrong way with COVID. I mean, the figures. Is that just your take on it, figures, or is it financially the, suicide that Dorna don't go? The figures are going the wrong way. Um, it doesn't look healthy i've been watching the uh there's a, a very useful government tracker in texas with the number of icu beds available um as of yesterday out of the 519 icu beds available in austin 515 of them were occupied and 260 of them were occupied by covid patients so essentially there are four icu beds available for the city of two and a half million people and we want to take a very very dangerous sport there where riders regularly end up in icu um i i think to be perfectly honest that it's reckless that we're pushing on with no concern for it but i understand why dorna have to do it because they're going to push on until someone else cancels the race for them um you know we saw F1 last year in Australia, the race was cancelled as fans were queuing at the gate on the Friday morning. The The difference is, I don't know if there's anyone in Texas with a slightly different approach to government who will be willing to cancel the race for them. Um, and I don't really know what that means for MotoGP. I don't know anyone in the paddock who's particularly enthused about going um, because because of all of these factors. Because the paddock has got used to the European new MotoGP world. As well, no, as well, no, no, as well. Because no, no, it, it genuinely the belief in the paddock is not that it's nothing to do with like everyone wants to go to Texas, everyone loves going to Austin, people want to do a flyaway again, they want sure. to travel again because it's been so long since we've done it. But we work in a dangerous sport, and whenever there's not enough hospital capacity, you know, I, I, I keep the the incident that keeps coming to mind for me. Um, because it's been Silverstone weekend. We all remember 2013, Cal Crutchlow crashed in Mormon warm-up. There was four marshals and Cal picking up his bike. Mark Marquez ignored a yellow flag, crashed, and thankfully, because a marshal was paying attention, they all got out of the way. If that had happened a split second different, you have five people suddenly seriously ill, and you have four intensive care beds in Austin. That's why the paddock don't want to go. It's it's a difficult one for Dorna, isn't it? And MotoGP and the and the people who need to uh, to put some money back into MotoGP because they spent a lot of money did MotoGP last year to make the championship happen in 2020, and 
as I keep saying, the, the race of the year, the promoter of the year was actually Carmelo Espeleta last year. He made it all happen. Fair play. Yeah. I take my hat off. Wow. And Absolutely the more people agree. I speak to in the paddock, the more I learn that it was touch and go that we even had a MotoGP championship at all last year. So it is a fine line between the the, the capitalistic world of earning money to make it all happen, to pay the teams, to pay the freight, and da, da 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 and how the business works, as well as going around in circles and having a great forty-three minutes worth of Grand Prix racing on a Sunday afternoon. It is a it is a an unenviable task for Dorna and MotoGP in the FIM. The problem is that while Dorna have done a very like taking nothing away from them, they have done an exceptional job. Um, supporting the MotoGP, MotoGP teams in particular. Things have been a bit tougher in Moto2 and Moto3. I know there are Moto2 and Moto3 teams who have said, if there are flyaways, we might be in trouble before this season is out. And the knock-on effect that we're going to see from the pandemic into next year is that I know at least two riders who have been in the final stages of negotiations so far with Moto2 teams for 2022 have thought that they had a ride sorted for next year and then have the team come back to them and said, uh, actually, someone else has come along with 300,000 euros and you're either going to have to match that or find another seat, thanks. Which is unfortunate. And Mudder GP teams, uh, as a minimum, and I believe some other teams, they are getting, either at Silverstone or at the next race, an extra five or ten passes just for their main sponsors. Not, you know, the granny of the yeah. mechanic who does the time. It's, it's going to yeah. be just for those main sponsors because they want to get that, I call it the piece of string in the credit card around the neck, because they've chucked in themselves with their company 500 million. Absolutely. 2 million euros, whatever it may be. So it's got to make it all go round so uh, it's an unenviable task and i take my hat off wow and i take my hat off to everybody who's who's made it happen and you know there's wedges of paperwork for all of the teams to travel particularly to the uk now that we're it, it's outside the eu and uh, wedges and wedges of tests as you know simon to get into the paddock and paperwork and you travel and it, it's not easy but the great thing is is that we've had these races and here we are we're on the verge of 18 grand prix this year um yes argentina is still on the dawn calendar but it's not gonna happen is it we all know that so we are 66 no, percent through the year and it's been fantastic for fabio quattararo he leads the championship by 65 points ahead of the reigning world champion, Juan Mir, who has been overshadowed, of course, by the Frenchman, but the Spaniard proving that last year wasn't quite a fluke, shall I say. Joan Zarco now in third position, didn't have a great Silverstone, but he's still there. Keep in touch with the-race.com. Do like and subscribe and let us know your thoughts on our podcast from wherever you download your podcasts from. Keep in touch with the news, the videos about Formula One, about MotoGP with our website, the-race.com. Valentin Harunshi, thank you so much. Simon Patterson, thank you so much as well. In the meantime, that was the Silverstone weekend. And from me, Toby Moody, it's goodbye for now. Goodbye.